Hey, just a heads up. The episode you're about to listen to, Freaks, directed by Todd Browning and written by Todd Robbins, includes descriptions of ableism, gaslighting, dismemberment, and transphobic violence, and our hosts have ranked this movie as existentially disconcerting. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website, progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, for show notes, relevant links, and transcripts of each episode. After the spooky music, we will talk about the episode in full, so be forewarned, there will be spoilers. Now, let's get on with the show. Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about the 1932 proto-horror classic Freaks. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cinebites. First, they're here to invade your house and find queer content in all your favorite movies. My co-host and comic book writer, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? I'm always nostalgic for when it's a real lion doing the Rory thing to let you know a movie's starting. Right. And we picked her up at the spooky crossroads of anime and sexy monster media. It's co-host and comic book artist, Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? I'm not as nostalgic for the sexism. But the rest of it, including the lion's roar, definitely has its charm. You could be nostalgic for the uh, sexism, but it's hard to be nostalgic for something that's never left. Yeah. And our special guest tonight is the creative team behind the comic book series Awake and the upcoming graphic novel Nyx, available for pre-order now. It's Susan Beneville and Brian Hess. Thanks for having us. I'm very excited to be talking about this movie because it's one of the few horror films I can actually sit through. So <laughs> Is that because yeah, it's I'm... only 60 minutes long? No, it's because it's not super scary. Oh, okay. For you listeners at home, some pre-behind-the-scenes knowledge going into this. This is Freaks, the 1932 film. It is indeed an hour long. The original cut was 90 minutes, which was declared too grotesque, quote-unquote, by shitty 1930s dehumanizing standards. So it was cut down to the 60-minute cut that exists today. Uh, the original 90-minute cut is now a lost film, and no known version is known to exist, unfortunately. Yeah, it, it apparently screened uh, a number of times at, you know, one or two theaters uh, in its original form. It had some issues with test screening audiences and things like that, so they pulled it and they cut it down to the 60 minutes. You will notice that it has been cut because there will be several moments where it's like, Wait, what just happened? And for a 60-minute movie, there's a lot of scenes that contribute nothing, that have no purpose. Yeah. It's as much a series of vignettes and character pieces as it is anything. It is directed by Todd Browning, who is uh, by trade a, a horror director. It is written by a whole slew of people, including it is suggested by the story Spurs by Clarence Aaron Robbins. It is written by Willis Goldbeck. Leon Gordon, and there are also several people who were uncredited who did uh, work on the script, including Al Bosberg, Charles MacArthur, and Edgar Allan Wolfe. And uh, the IMDb description of this says, a circus's beautiful trapeze artist agrees to marry the leader of a sideshow performers, but his deformed friends discover she is only marrying him for his inheritance. Which is, in itself, an interesting choice of words in the, the description on IMDb. It's not inaccurate, but it's important to note that that plot doesn't enter the story until 40 minutes into this hour-long film. Yeah. I mean, it's the second scene, and then 
40 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I kind of only knew about this movie in passing. I have a friend who's just huge horror movie buff. And I don't really even consider this a horror film. You know what I mean? I, I don't know what you guys think. I, it's more of like a drama, I guess. I, I would wonder agree. if this is a horror film by the standards of 1930s audiences going, ah, disabled people, scary. It's interesting because it definitely was considered a horror film at the time, I think partly because of Todd Browning's reputation. But like you you know, point out, there's really nothing other than like unpleasantly emotionally horrible until that very last bit when they turn on them. And that's why I refer to it as a sort of a proto-horror, because it sort of lays the groundwork for a lot of horror that has come. You can see elements of it in American Horror Story. You can see elements of it in the recent Nightmare Alley. But it, in and of itself, I don't think qualifies as horror. Yeah. Yeah, there is, I think, one scene, maybe five minutes from the end of the movie, that has a real, like, horror feel to it. But also, I think by that point, you are so much more invested in the characters who are doing the horrible things than the people that are having the horrible things done to them, that it just feels more like a revenge thing than anything. Yeah, it, it, it definitely feels like justice. And there's a lot of horrible stuff that people are doing, but it's more of a drama kind of situational horror. And again, I'm sure that people in 1932 were shocked by what they saw on the screen. But it is important to mention there's the whole for the time argument, which is for the time this movie was incredibly unusual in the fact that it was humanizing these people. The fact that they are depicted is different from the way that they are depicted. And the movie goes to great pains to show these people's daily lives, which I think is part of why we have these scenes that don't seem to have any like any relevance to the plot. If we condensed the events of this movie to those that are relevant to the plot, it'd be like five minutes. That said, there are some very, very upsetting depictions of people who probably do not have the ability to consent to be on film. But for the most part, these people are performers that are doing some fantastic jobs performing, especially Hans and Frida. Now, I don't know very much trivia about this movie, and I would love for all of you who have actually done the research, which I, I just got to that special message prologue, Susan, that you sent us. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? About the special message prologue? I believe it was added later after the initial reactions to it. And what's interesting about the special message prologue was basically a way of saying it was sort of priming the pump to humanize these people, but it's incredibly patronizing at the same time. At the end of the, the thing, they're basically talking about how historically people with disabilities, and of course they use far more charged language in this prologue for the film, historically how they've been you know, abused and turned out, and used as freaks and used as entertainments. And they make the point that these are people who have the full range of human emotions and for the most part, human intelligence. And so they're doing this thing where they're humanizing them, trying to create this historical reference. But then at the very end, they refer to them as blunders, which yeah. I think is just great. It, it's this hopeful ending to the prologue where they basically say, hopefully with the changes in modern science, we won't have as many of these blunders in the future. There you go. Thank you for that. An interesting thing to note about this is that Todd Browning is somebody who worked in the carnival and in the circus and would have known people like this as people that he worked with on a daily basis. And I think that really shows because I think there's quite a bit of stuff in this movie that doesn't scan probably the way it did when it came out. That, you know, especially the language is a, is a little rough. Uh, there's, you know, some things that are done and said that are intentionally coarse and horrible. But I think 
it is incredibly ahead of its time in that uh, it both treats disabled people in these you know many versions that they come in in this movie as real people. We don't see them from the perspective of the sideshow. We don't see what they're doing when they're out there in the circus. We see what they're like behind the scenes and we see them as real people living real and complicated lives. You know, the only time we're on the other side of the curtain is the sort of framing pieces about the punishment of the character that rejected the code of the freaks, as it is stated in the movie. And there's something that I think is very important. There is a really big theme in this movie about how the only reason to feel shame is to feel shame, uh, especially in the beginning when they're on the uh, the French estate and the young people are afraid. The lord of this estate comes along and tries to shoo them off and then is told that they were part of the circus. So he's like, OK, you can you can stay. But their matron basically says, I've told you never to be afraid of these people and basically shames them for feeling afraid. For a movie with this very loose vignette feel, if that's the way you're going to do it, I do appreciate how much of this movie was dedicated to just showing these people as performers and their unique talents. Uh, like the scene where it's pretty much no plot or character development happens. It's just a showcase of Prince Randy and as the living torso rolling a cigarette with his mouth. And it's just a, like an amazing feat of talent, even if it then does end with the Pretty astoundingly incredible line delivery on the line. I can do anything with my mouth. That's clearly a scene that's had some chopping done to it as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. The cuts are very noticeable. So let's jump into a little bit of, of what happens in this. This movie is wild in and of itself. Because basically we get the set piece uh, that we enter in on of these people at a freak show and a circus. They're being shown something terrifying and we're told that this used to be this beautiful trapeze artist we don't see what the thing is yet but you know we get the fade into cleopatra played by olga baklanova uh who is this beautiful trapeze artist who's being watched by these by this couple who both have dwarfism there's hans and frida who are actually played by a real life brother and sister harry and daisy earls and they're watching hans is talking a lot about how uh Beautiful she is, watching her very closely. Frida is clearly jealous of this, knows what's going on right away, even though Hans denies it. And uh, Hans starts flirting with Cleo as soon as she she comes out of the tent. And Cleo is not above flirting back and immediately is just, seems to be clocking how much she can take advantage of Hans from the first time they talk in the movie. So right off the bat, my first thought was, Man, we fucked up not pairing this with Nightmare Alley and doing a whole ass carnival month. That we clearly should have made this a theme thing. Have you guys? Oh well. Have you all seen it? I've seen it. Yeah, I yeah, we did Alley. Nightmare Alley like yeah. a few weeks sure. ago. I'm just being like, yeah. we should have scheduled these together. Ah, oh, what were we thinking? Ah, oh, well, that was the first thing I thought with the first scene where they're looking exactly. It. I was like, this is Nightmare Alley. Okay. And yeah. I had the reveal and everything. Yeah, I, I did too. I think the biggest thing I took from it was the little like slice of life things that are happening where like the Siamese twins or one of them's getting engaged. And I thought it was really interesting how one of them, the other one reacted when the other one was kissed. And, you know, it was little stuff like that that was kind of surprising. And I know this slightly off topic, but the cinematography was actually really cool for the time. And yeah. For somebody that doesn't watch movies that I usually watch stuff from like the sixties on, I rarely go back unless it's like something really big, like a big milestone movie. But I was really impressed with the cinematography here. It was really great. 
Yeah, everything with the conjoined twins and their different fiancés feels like it could have been, like, a movie all its own, like a 1950s, some like it hot style comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the humor was certainly utilizing some of these characters' abilities as butts of jokes. There's the, the guy who, as far as I know, the performer, he just has a stutter. He's like part of Hercules' strongman show. Yeah. Not figure that out. Okay. So what blew me away about the guy with the stutter is they do the classic like porky pig style joke where he stumbles over a word twice and then the third time does a completely different word. This movie came out three years before Porky Pig was created. Was this style of stuttering joke just like already in the zeitgeist and now it's we just attribute it to Porky Pig? Was this like a big thing already? Like an easy go-to joke that was already in the air? That's a good question because I I think so. I think so. Yeah, because it seems like something that I would see with Three Stooges. I mean, I, you know. Let's, well, let's go down our, our list of characters we meet here. We, in between these first two general outside the circus scenes, we have the scene that Emily was referring to, which is where we get Madame Tetralini and the, the children from the circus sort of running around on this estate. And, you know, there's the one guy who was just so, he just saw these scary things and he's called the landowner to come kick these creatures out the landowner is like oh these these guys here and madame titrelini is like oh no these are the children from the circus and landowner's like oh they're children from a circus what's wrong with you they're fine and i I guess you know he's supposed to be our like feel-good surrogate for the audience right that we're like yeah they're children we understand that we're good people although they do have an interesting point of view cut to characters that are definitely not children, which is a kind of weird signaling to me. Some of the people had, I don't know what the, the condition is called. The the microcephalics? Yes. With the smaller head? Yeah. You know, I'm trying to avoid the language of the time, which is slur-laden. It's the Schlitzy, Elvira, and Jenny Lee who all appear throughout the movie. But yeah, they, I think, fall most strongly into that category of probably are not able to like consult knowingly to being in this movie but yeah we get to see them and then we get back to the circus this is where we get sort of the wider introduction to the circus characters we have the rollo brothers who suck they're just two performer brothers and they mostly hang around with hercules who's the strong man who really sucks Uh, yeah yeah. fuck hercules (laughs) yeah yeah He's a, he's a big dude and he's a shitty dude. That's his whole role in this movie. The first time we see him, Venus is, is leaving him because he's, she doesn't really specify why other than that he's awful to her. But Believable. you can only imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Venus does the, she is one of the other, they call them tall people or big people in this, you know, as a performer that just has a skill that they're doing in this and are yeah, played yeah. by actors and actresses rather than people who are circus performers to begin with. And she is the whole thing with Frozo, who I kind of love, doesn't have a real name, is only known by his clown name. He is only Frozo. Yeah. He's really dedicated to that part. He's so dedicated, which I gotta say, seeing a character so dedicated to an art form that's so dumb, <laughs> man, did I relate to that as a comic book writer. <laughs> yeah, I think Venus is interesting because she's, she's the animal trainers she's got her seals 
that seal really seemed to be responding to her. I don't know if she's actually got animal training uh, expertise no. or somebody else that was there to just be like, all right, seal, get in the pen. I enjoyed that brief shot of the seal, but I also felt bittersweet because I'm like, whether it's a circus or a movie about circuses, I know there's no way that seal hasn't been mistreated in real life in order to get him into that box. Yeah. Fortunately, there are not very many depictions of animals in the circus. There's a cow and there's a seal, but no Willem Dafoe. I mean, I feel like Frozo is as close as we get to Willem Dafoe. His thing is that he's a clown. That's his whole thing. Um, and he's sexist. I, I mean, he's the best trying to of- depict him positively. He's introduced by Venus yelling at him for being there, basically. And he's, he pulls out a you dames kind of bit with her. But then she'll apologize and he'll be like, you don't realize how great you are. That's your problem. Uh, I feel like he's supposed to be a decent guy. And they do make reference to, he says, you should have known me before my surgery. And they do not specify what that surgery is. There's yeah. lots of speculation online because I, w- I went and looked it up and everything's yeah. like, I don't know. It, it's theoretically got something to do with him, uh, you know, not being able to have kids or whatever. Which is so sexist. He's like yelling at her for, uh, you know, women aren't respected until they get older. And then they don't realize how good they have it until they're old and nobody wants them anymore or whatever. I think you said something like that. Yeah. I mean, he he was depicted as a protagonist character, like a, yeah. a sympathetic character. But he was a very casually sexist asshole. And, you know, he's kind of hating Frozo, though. Sure. Because he gets a date with Venus and forgets about it because he's too busy making his gag, like, clown bath. It's a bathtub on wheels. I don't know what the gag's supposed to be, but I really want to see it. It's a bathtub on wheels that goes over him. He has, like, straps on it so that he can, you know, run in on it or sit in it, pretend to be, you know, in a bath in the thing and he's gotten so into making this thing that he has just totally forgotten that he's supposed to be going on a date with this he's so serious about being a clown that it's it's impossible not to be endearing like he just cares about his craft so much yeah and he's not like a total asshole because he's look i i do care about you even though you're a woman but it's the best romance the movie gives us yeah that's true. But, you know, I, I agree with you, like, about the sex. At first, I was like, he's a creeper. He's spying on her. And then he comes in and he's silent. As he's removing his makeup, he begins to reveal his true self, it seems. And then he's kind of a jerk. Really, he's an intense jerk in that first scene. And then he becomes likable. And at some point, I was, like, trying to figure out, like, is he into her or is he not into her? Is he not able to be into her? Is he supposed to be, like, there's, like, place placeholder for like gay i don't know what he is until then there, there's the big moment between them and i'm like oh okay i guess he's into her he's just into yeah. himself though i feel like he's into his clown thing like you just said he didn't start talking to her until most of his makeup was off you know what i mean and then he forgets about the date and he's just so i don't know i i felt like he was the most self-absorbed character in the movie i don't know if you guys agree with that i mean Maybe, other than leo. leo yeah yeah protagonist quote unquote yeah but i mean the redeeming moment with the uh with schlitzy and and the others jenny lynn speaking to them as people and he's talking to them and engaging with them in a different way like he treats them as like normal friends that he has yeah he and venus both respect and then love the other people they work with even the the people that like don't look like them that they don't necessarily understand they're both very excited to go see the bearded lady's baby 
uh, when oh. the bearded lady has a baby shortly after this. But then we have the Rollo brothers and Hercules and Cleo, who are all just shits. They're real shits. Yeah. God. And just it, the it, shittiest of shits. Yeah. They're, it, they're just bad people who are bad to all of the other people in this movie. But yeah, I mean, then you have characters like Roscoe who are kind of in the middle. You know, he is he has a stutter. And he's also dating Daisy, who's one of the conjoined twins, Daisy and Violet. I don't know if it's an explicit theme of this movie, but I think this movie does a very good job depicting how all of these people are circus performers. They are in the same circumstances, like the same economic reality. And yet through discrimination against the disabled, they like, especially like Cleo and Hercules, routinely, I guess the guy, Roscoe, I think his name is, uh, the husband, routinely put to a lesser degree, putting down the disabled in order to make themselves feel bigger and higher status. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Roscoe is depicted as just perpetually frustrated with Violet, who is conjoined, the conjoined twin of Daisy, his his, uh, fiancé. Um, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's a whole other more 50s. of a type than anything. He's just like a red buttons type. Like it's like a '50s comedy where it's like there's the strong mind sister, and then oh, there's the circus owner who comes in. Like this is a whole other wacky movie that only gets like a few minutes to play out in this film. Yeah, and it's also pretty interesting because it is definitely a B plot because we do follow yeah. Daisy and Violet. We get to see like Violet making out with her fiance while daisy's just sitting there reading (laughs) mr rogers will appear in one scene and never be heard from again yeah just so we could see how that works which i did appreciate because immediately that's the question that that someone's going to ask is how does that work roscoe is like you said he was middling also because he's not quite he's between the abled people but he's not quite there because of his stutter and everything. So he is put down and treated like a joke by people like Hercules. But, uh, you know, he also is kind of transferring that to Daisy and Violet and trying really hard to be like a man of the house. So, and I'm sure there's a lot of commentary about toxic masculinity that we can come up with there, but we'll wait for that. Who have we missed so far? We mentioned Prince Randian, who is billed as the living torso. It's a man with no arms and legs who demonstrates doing things with his mouth several times throughout the movie. That guy's pretty great. Yeah. He's real charismatic on screen, except for that one line about doing anything with his mouth, which is a weird cut to it. So I'm, I'm yeah. guessing uh, there was other stuff there. We also have Johnny Eck, who is billed as half boy in this, who is a man with no legs who walks on his hands. We have Cuckoo, who is billed as the Burt girl in this. Josephine Joseph, the half woman. Half man who's a recipient of just some wanton transphobic violence. So, uh, you oh, yeah, throw that on your trigger warnings. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Isn't, aren't they just like hanging outside and he just comes out and says, What are you looking at? I can't remember exactly what he said. What are you looking at? Seems like they're out. He's just Hercules and Cleo kissing, or yeah. just being Joseph sees yeah, Hercules and Cleo it. kissing. And uh, Hercules just comes out and just decks him and then cleo laughs like it's the funniest fucking thing well there was a bit earlier when uh josephine joseph was walking by hercules uh, and roscoe yes and roscoe's like you know she likes you but he doesn't and everyone has a great big laugh 
Yeah, we did the bit that's almost identical to a bit they do about three minutes earlier with the Rolo brothers when when Josephine Joseph walks by. Yeah, they, I don't know, it feels like they have one thing to say about Josephine Joseph, and it is not a particularly enlightened point of view. Yeah. Right, but it is the bad guys doing it. You know, yeah. you never get Frozo or Venus doing it. And I think we got a lot of like sympathetic shots and like reaction shots from Joseph Josephine yeah. that. And I, I mean, I think the whole time, like when Hercules clocks them, it's yeah, that that sucked. And I think the film makes you think that sucked. That was wrong. Yeah. You know, as opposed to, oh, that would validate what the audience, what, what they're expecting the audience to feel. Yeah, the Especially, music cue definitely feels like it's supposed to be a bad guy thing. It's not. Yeah. Despite it being kind of shot in a way that feels very, I don't know, Three Stooges and the way that he just winds up and punches her like it's super a super 20s punch delivered there but yeah it's that's maybe the roughest part of the movie josephine doesn't really get a speaking part in this movie at all hercules punches joseph but it's still like harassing the what the this film would depict as an innocent woman because the film has even though it is incredibly old-fashioned and xenophobic and all this kind of stuff about gender fluidity and plurality and all this kind of stuff they do make a point to say that josephine joseph is both and also you know member of the community because josephine joseph is is always dressed that way it's not something that they it's not a mask that they remove like the clown right, right. that 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 has something to do with their true identity as opposed to a stage identity. We also do have uh, a couple of other recurring characters. There's Frances O'Connor, who's the armless girl we, we see frequently throughout the thing, doing everyday tasks with uh, with her feet, just sort of set in the middle of the frame doing stuff, really all she's got. And then Angelino is sort of the third character with dwarfism who's really just there to help move the plot along later. Yeah, he's there to see things, plot-relevant yeah. yeah. things happening. Yeah. yeah. And give our meme-worthy famous moment, Ooga Boogaloo, one of us, like, song. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That was interesting. <laughs> yeah. So by this point, by the time we've introduced all these guys, we get to Cleo already borrowing significant amounts of money from Hans, who's clearly a sucker for at this point. Venus has left Hercules, and he has immediately moved on to Cleo, who is simultaneously leading Hans on while clearly uh, you know, sleeping around with Hercules and making an effort to hide Hercules uh, so as to continue to extort stuff from, from Hans. So, yeah, this is where Josephine yeah. sees Hercules kissing Cleo and uh, then Hercules just punches Josephine. And then we it just have like a good. jump in time. It felt too. bad. Yeah, it felt very bad. I'm not sure what time is because we keep just... We're always in the waiting area of the circus, so it's never, time is difficult in this movie. Yeah, it's hard to follow because of the, they make references, like when we get to Paris, when the, what's his name, the clown? Frozo. Frozo. Oh yeah, when Frozo is talking to Schlissy and he's telling her that he's going to get her a beautiful hat with a big feather and when they get to Paris. And then later... We see her with the hat, so we have to assume that they've been traveling. Cleo learns about Hans's inheritance and comes up with the plan to marry and kill him for that inheritance. The very next scene is their wedding dinner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Like the very next scene, there's zero time in between these actions. Move that a clip. Yeah. Right after Hercules punches out Josephine Joseph, like there's this weird edit that just goes to Hans and Frida where Hans is kind of like looking off, like to the left or something. And I I thought he was watching this happen. That's what I thought, but I could be wrong because like you guys said, there is no time in this movie. Things just happen. So yeah, I uh, thought that he was not looking at her because he was so ashamed. You know, oh. because he, this is when he's, you know, breaking up with Frida. Yeah. So. Yeah. Meanwhile, so like. Before the wedding. Hans is spending, apparently, I guess, months just giving gifts to, like, lavish gifts to Cleo. And at no point does he break it off with Frida until she, like, forces him to. Yeah. Hans. Hans, come on. And she's a champion about that, like, in terms of just her patience and she's putting up with too much emo. I'm amazed that she survived this movie and wasn't some sort of too good for the sinful earth, like tragic sort And then Hans loses like, oh, if only I'd known true love while I had it. Ah, tragedy. Does it count as passing the Bechdel test when Venus and Frida are talking about Cleo stealing Hans? I'm going to say it passes it, but with a C minus. Yeah, I think it's a, it's not quite, I mean, they're still talking about something that a dude did. I would say that this movie doesn't really pass the reverse Bechdel test. There's no scene where two men are talking and it's not about a woman. Not true. We have the scene of Hercules and Roscoe discussing that Roscoe isn't doing a good job being a Roman lady in the strongman lion show. I mean, they are talking about a lady. That lady just happens to also be Roscoe. Yes, yeah, I wanted to go back really quick to the scene where uh, Venus is leaving Hercules and she was yelling at uh, Frozo while he was taking off his makeup. And she actually s- says all of this stuff uh, that basically spits back all of this kind of sexist rhetoric into his face where she says, oh, I guess we're women are funny. We're all tramps, you know, which I thought was a pretty solid move, despite the fact that Frozo's like, as sexist, it, it does show us that Venus is aware of the sexism. And therefore, all- Libra's writing is also aware of sexism. Exactly. Again, I wasn't sure how much was like deep-seated misogyny and how much was just like mid-Atlantic fast talk. How you doing? See, like, like just that that's just how movie characters talked in every fucking movie back then. Why did we have an accent that we used only for movies? Who came up with that? Because it's the 30s and everybody was like, oh, see, you know, darling, you know, like yeah. Frida was doing. Yeah, it's always trouble when a dame walks in the room, see? Such a dames, all the dames. Clown is a serious art form, see? <laughs> I think the reason Frida and Hans' adorably German accent stand out even more. Isn't there like a, there was like an actual reason why people spoke like that in movies though, wasn't there? Like there was like being from the Chesapeake area fucking mattered. Cleo is full of shit from the get go. Like she is there to use and ridicule Hans as much as possible and only keep him on that leash as long as she can get the uh, the benefits. And he has a, a speech about his condition and how people don't take him seriously. So he he comes out with the defense saying like, oh, you think I'm a, just a baby or I'm a child when I'm a grown man and I have the same feelings that men have. Now, that is 
super valid. But Cleo, she's all about, I mean, like, she she likes to, she can control. Yeah. She also, I think, pretty obviously physically digs Hercules. Yeah. We never really, and that, I mean, it, it's a pre-code film, but we never see her engaging in any kind of, like, sexuality actually with Hans. Like, we, they may, they have, like, a little wine. There's, like, maybe one peck on the cheek or something. There was the back uh, rub. Which oh, yes. The back very, rub. Very. Back rub. Scandalous yeah, for this time. Acra. I read it, yeah. it wasn't just that the movie isn't showing us being intimate, but that she has never been intimate with Hans and always kept him at arm's length just because, I mean, at the wedding when they're doing the, like, one of us, we accept you, like, God, she can't even pretend for any length of time. Yeah, at first like, I thought she was, she thought that they were using this poisoned wine that she had poisoned. Yeah. I thought too. I yeah. thought the same thing with the way it was shot. I kept trying to track that bottle of wine. Oh, I thought yeah. it was just pure fucking elitism. Like, how dare you? Think, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Leading up to the wedding, I mean, we have sort of all the other people with the circus gossiping about this. Like, everybody knows that Cleo's not on the level. We get Violet getting engaged to Mr. Rogers, which is a sort of out of left field scene that doesn't, doesn't go much of anywhere other than... no. There is thought, though. There is one line in the movie See? where I'm like, this is mean and cruel and discriminatory, but it's kind of a good fucking line. And it's when Roscoe and Frozo see Cleo with Hans and Roscoe goes, Cleo's on a diet. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, fuck, that's, I'm like, I feel like that's, yeah, that's the kind of like gossip, like mean yet clever gossip that people would fucking say on these kinds of things. Yeah, even Frozo loses his shit. I mean, yeah, the rest of the scene is just Frozo fucking dying at that line. Yeah, <laughs> that that joke fucking kills. Frozo appreciates things that are funny, no matter how cruel they are. He's just like, right, ah, comedy. I forgot our date, but I'm in a bathtub. I know it's I like this going on a date with you. I forgot, but check out this cool bathtub I made humiliation is very prevalent in this film yeah i think that's actually like that goes pretty well with what happens next which is yeah frida is is going out of her way to try and keep hans from being humiliated even though hans has sort of humiliated her already at this point yeah but she's like listen like she's not good she's terrible she's going to do horrible things to you hans is just like frida you know what you're talking about she loves me it's fine i thought i loved that scene that was probably my favorite scene in the movie when they had that intimate like scene together where it's just them talking yeah. um, it was really i loved the way it was shot there was one where he was on you know uh frame left and kind of shadow and she was in the in the background i loved the way of, i don't know i, I love the way it was shot it was great it was a fantastic drama scene. Yeah. Absolutely. And they were killing it. And yeah, that's where this movie really is a drama. It's not, I don't know exactly how it was presented when it was released in the 30s. I'm sure the shock value was there. I'm certain that it was surprising for people because they were expecting a horror movie. Yeah. I mean, I think it was panned. I mean, it was, it, it had a very negative reaction. And I've always wondered if that wasn't because it wasn't a horror movie and people were disappointed. Yeah. I kind of wonder, this is, this is the, the, 
sort of sarcastic cynic in me, which is a whole bunch of people in 1932 went to the movies and they thought this movie based on the poster was going to be about a bunch of quote unquote freaks and they were going to all be able to sit there and be horrified and grossed out and be able to laugh at these people and be scared by them. And in fact, they went to this film and they were presented in this really humane way and they were like suddenly oh, wait, the people that we were intending to be scared by are, in fact, the people we care about in this film. Yeah. And that's why it was successful. It's essentially a slice of life movie. I wouldn't call it a documentary by any means. Oh, you're right. I I feel the same way. I feel, especially with just, you're just looking at relationships. That's all it is. Yeah. And literally slices of relationships, you know what I mean? And the fact that, you know, we talked about the time passing too. That was really important. You know, you like, I wonder how many days or weeks this went on, you know, like how much time between the argument between Hans and Frida before the wedding. That, yeah. They don't really identify or let you know how much time it actually passed. Yeah. Like, but I think talk about the don't take, don't steal my man scene between Frida and Cleo. Oh yeah. That, that comes up next. Essentially she doesn't even doesn't even give her a, a don't steal my man so much as a like i know you're just screwing with him like i know you're going to humiliate him and uh, like i'm asking you not to i'm just asking you to be decent over the course of this conversation she thinks that cleo knows and inadvertently lets slip that like hans isn't just buying her nice stuff hans actually inherited a fortune like hans is very rich which is what convinces uh cleo to that she should marry him he's uh, because, He's just doing it for the love of the circus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah she she talks to Hercules about how uh, she can marry him and then get his fortune because, quote, midgets aren't strong, implying that she is going to she is going to marry him with the intention of murdering him and stealing his fortune. If you had any question about what sort of a person Cleo is by this point in the movie. Yeah. Cleo has no subtlety or chill. No. Like, no. She, isn't, she isn't even I'm like, oh, interesting. There's an inheritance. Oh, well, you know, that I, that doesn't affect me. She is immediately like, really? Yeah, her eyeball turning into dollars. Like laughing about it to Frida the whole time. I, I think she said what Cleopatra married to like Hans and, you know, uh, what she called herself, Queen of the Earth or something like that, too. She said something. Oh like, yeah, she called it something like that. Yeah, queen of the yeah. queen of the freaks. It was it. Or something like that. But yeah, she's laying there. Oh, you know. Yeah. Like speaking with Frida, like she doesn't even care. She yeah, mm-hmm. you guys are right. She had no chill at all. She just doesn't care at all. Yeah. First person. I mean, it's not even exactly clear what she wants the money for. Because at one point she's like, "Ooh, a platinum bracelet. I can sell this for a bunch. To do what? To buy different." bracelets like what are you trying to leave the circus is there more to your character like what is the goal of money for you cleo or just to have it probably she's gold digging from second one except for when she's she on that the gold she just wants to put the gold on a shelf yeah this like, is like within two minutes in the movie she finds out that hans has a bunch of money decides to marry him and then kill him and gets hercules in on the plot and then they get married and, and we jump straight to the wedding feast, which is both the saddest scene in the movie. And I think the most well-known scene in the movie, because this is where we get the one of us, one of us, Google gobble chant that has, has appeared in lots of other things in some form since then. And I'm sure at some point I've yelled on here, but they're uh, passing around the, the loving cup. Everybody is supposed to take a drink from it and then 
Cleo will take a drink from it and that will make Cleo one of them. They'll accept her into the family. And at the point that this cup comes to Cleo, she is, she has even less chill than usual, calls them like dirty, disgusting or filthy, disgusting freaks and throws the cup, like throws the contents of the cup and the cup at them. At which point everybody else, everybody else leaves, uh, except for Han, who tells her that she's a disgrace. Cleo has so no, no chill. She's flat out making out with Hercules yes. in front of Hans at their wedding. And Frida, which is when Frida's falling out. She's just like, yeah, Frida's at the wedding, which right. Frida is saint. Frida's a fucking saint. Yes. Oh my God. I know. Frida, again, too good for this world, but she does stick through it, you know? And a lot of it, though. She sat through everything and then stormed out, right? Yeah. yeah, she sat through the whole wedding. Think officiated that ceremony. We skipped to the reception. Who, who do you think did the ceremony? The professor, right? <laughs> That's what Mister Rogers was there for. I was about to say the, the owner of the. Uh, I think the, it's like cat, ship captain, right? So I'm pretty sure the owner of the circus can marry any. Yeah, I feel oh, like nice. <laughs> or the, I feel like an owner of a circus yeah. and a captain of a ship have similar powers. <laughs> But you're, you're right about that scene where Hans then, after being embarrassed by his new wife, kind of calls her on it. And then they do that really humiliating thing to him where they throw him on top of Cleo's shoulders and oh, God. dance around with him. And I mean, that was just heartbreaking. You know, you just see him cover his face in shame. Yeah, which, again, is the worst thing that these that can happen. And that's another thing about the whole situation with Cleo is that Hans, at the start, was like, oh, you're making fun of me. And Cleo was like, no, never. And then this whole time, that's all she's doing. Yeah. And then she, what she is doing is seen by all of these people as like still pretty sketch, but because Hans believes in her and Hans vouches for her, they're willing to pass her the loving cup, even though, and this is after she's made out with Hercules at the table, you know, as they're drunk. She points in with, what I looked it up and it was like rotten food. Yeah, in the brute. I don't know where this movie fits in with the temperance movement. There's a lot of like anti-alcoholism messaging in this movie, which I think is important. That's interesting. I didn't think about that, but you're right. It's right around that time too. So that's it's Great Depression. So it's after it's after Prohibition started. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's set in France, so it's okay that they were drinking. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, like, France is going to France. You can't not be. You can't not be a um, wine-drinking carnival worker in France. But Frozo, with this whole, like, in the middle of his, like, misogynistic tirade, he's like, listen, all you dames and those uh, tramps, and either you're tramps or you're old, or, but don't drink. Yeah, there was that in there. Yeah. yeah this weird, like, don't drink, don't kids. Drink, kids. <laughs> which i will strange. grant you is good advice on like dealing with a breakup like hey you're going through a breakup don't just drink yourself into oblivion over it yeah but again, totally it's you're absolutely right that would have been one of the most mainstream political debates of the day you can't have alcohol in your film and not have it be politically charged in some way in that era yeah and also the fact that they keep saying every time that Cleo and Hercules do something absolutely deplorable in public, they are 
saying, oh, we're drunk. And that's their excuse. You know, it, no. it had some this, things are just timeless. Well, yeah. But I mean, like they're saying, like, all these bad people are drinking. Straight edge. Prozo, the straight edge cloud sounds way too much like something from this year and not 1932. Some things are timeless. They do show everybody. Ah, you turned my words back on me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Uno reversed me. <laughs> that leads into the next scene, though, where they're back in, you know, what, Cleo's space and Hans is there and Hercules, and they're basically like gaslighting him, like, oh, this is fine. And he's standing there, like, half dead like saying i don't blame you i heard something like that that was the the most awkward scene i i feel watching in the movie for me that was the most awkward thing i think i've seen period in a long time <laughs> it's it was ridiculous and i forgot who was watching them through the window was angelino it? i think yeah, yeah it was angelino yeah yeah yeah, yeah. he was our helpful like plot was- solving character well, he he was just staring all the time. It began to freak me out just a little bit, just yeah. like, did, constantly. He did one of those good like meme moments where he very slowly like <laughs> left the frame. Yeah, like, almost too slowly back into the into the shrub. Yeah, yeah, like the Homer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> pulled the Homer Simpson there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing we haven't talked about is the code and how they establish both at the wedding party. And I think actually before that, this code of, if you hurt one of us, you hurt us all. And that whole idea around the wedding party and the one of us, one of us chanted this whole idea of this community and how they are, they've built their own community. You know, it's a found family. Oh, there we go. LGBTQ found family and how you are the outsiders create their own community and world. And in order to survive, they have to react in a way that if you hurt one of us, you hurt all of us. If you love one of us, you love all of us. And of course, we come to see how that plays out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the code is referred to at the very beginning of the film. Yeah. It's uh, there. And then there's a scene where they're sort of gossiping about them and they make clear, like, she better not fucking hurt him. <laughs> yeah. Or she's going to be in for it. It's very similar. Well, that that is also picked up on in Nightmare Alley, which... Yeah. No, the new version of Nightmare Alley, I don't haven't seen the old one, but that torch is taken up by Ron Perlman's character, who's like, if you hurt one of us, you hurt all of us. And Who couldn't be further from Hercules if he tried. Yeah, he's definitely, he's more of the, the Frozo. Wildly different ends of the moral alignment scale. Yeah, Frozo's like both Ron Perlman and Willem Dafoe, but without any of the look, which... He didn't I mean, have, but he does have it. a bathtub with a hole in the bottom of it. Yeah. Important. And like, you know, I didn't know if this is a, does Frozo look weird or is this just what bodies looked like in 1932? I was I think just thinking the same thing. I think it's just he's that a guy. I, I don't think there's anything going on with his body that is. Yeah, I, I think he's just a guy. I don't think we're supposed to see him as and is in any way not normal. We're just so used to like roided out Hugh Jackman like being on screen. Yeah. That we don't know what to do with just undoing doesn't exercise. Okay, so she poisons him, he passes out, she calls the doctor <laughs> in time to save him. He wakes up in bed. She's saved him, but is also slowly poisoning him to death uh, in his bed. But he is wise to this, as is everybody else. Angelina watches it happen and reports back to him, and then they set her up to do it, to do it while everybody is just hanging around in there, and... uh Good old Hans sits up and is like, 
give me the bottle of poison. Just, just give it to me. And she's like, what? And then they all start pulling out switchblades. Um, a Luger. And a Luger, which I'm like. And a Luger. It's like, oh, you just, you took it to another level there. And I just want to say that dude was walking around on his hands and carrying a Luger in his jacket. <laughs> I need impressive dude. Yeah, these are impressive performers, but I just want to reinforce this. Thank you. Yeah. Also, in what feels like an added on bit at the end here, Frozo finds out that Hercules thinks that Venus knows too much about what's going on. So he's going to go kill Venus and her thing while this other stuff is unfolding with Cleo. And so Frozo goes to fight Hercules, who's trying to kill Venus. And they have a whole battle in their moving caravans. Uh, that felt up- like they did the test screening and the studio was like, we need more action. Go back to where we got to do some more reshoots on freaks to get more action. in." but that's not how they did things in the 1930s. So I don't know what the fuck. Yeah. We need rain. We need wagons. We need puddles. Well, the, it's the most high something it, for the professional actors to do. It like, absolutely yeah. feels like the most high budget. More like what's in the movie. Also, uh, we talk about the real actors because this is the 1930s and ableism and everything's terrible. The only freak act, quote unquote, freak actors who are allowed in the regular studio were the Siamese twins and Hans and Frida. Everyone else was only allowed to be filmed in a special out of the way tent that they put them all in so that the regular people on the studio lot wouldn't have to see them. This is an MGM production. And it had actually, yeah. for, for the time, a decent budget because it was coming off of Browning's uh, Success yeah. in Dracula. Uh, $310,000 budget, according to uh, Wikipedia. Which in today's yeah. budget is a lot more. Yes. After. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, like uh, it's a lot more. I do not know the, the maths. Dollar sign, dollar sign, dollar sign, dollar sign, four dollar signs. So yeah, Hercules and Frozo uh, roll around in the mud. The caravan crashes. It is unclear why. Uh, I guess maybe it's the fighting in the caravan that's causing it to crash. But it's one of those like the horses catch fire and explode kind of crashes. Um, (laughs) I would have loved so hard if the horses exploded in this movie. Yeah. Again, 1930s budget. I don't know if they could have. Uh, they would have blown up the actual horses with real TNT, and it would have been like, yeah. what fucking animal, right? Before yeah. too far along, I want to point out how he got in the carriage. I don't know why he didn't just break the window, but he like kicked the bottom out of the back of. The, I don't even know why. I didn't know what was happening. There's a muscle man. I get. Yeah, it. like you guys remember that, right? Yeah. Why did he just open the door? It was very confusing. Venus also confused about what's going on in this yeah. scene. Well, the, the doors. So he just yeah. kicked in the bottom of it and then jumped down off the caravan and then dove back in through the broken bottom. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's the whole car chase situation where, you know, the, the caravans, the interiors are definitely not related to the exterior shots in this more than ever. And then, of course, with yeah. exterior shots. You're so cynical. I'm really filmed this in a moving caravan. I'm sorry. I not rig with some poor guy wiggling around. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like if it was actually filmed in the caravan, they'd only be going like five miles an hour or whatever, but it would be shot like they were going 50 or something like that. That thing is booking. 
Yeah. Uh, especially well, every they... time they cut outside to the horses, the horses look like they are fleeing from lava or something. They're like on that yeah. level of panic. They, they, they sped it up. Film. Yeah. They yeah. did speed up the film. Oh, yeah. Those were like jittery. They're running away from yeah. whatever fucking trainers forcing them to be in this movie. Yeah. Right. The seal was like, get out. As Frozo and Hercules are, are fighting, everybody else starts to show up, crawling underneath the wagons with their various knives and lugers and other weapons. And uh, Hercules catches a knife to the stomach. And that is the last we see of Hercules. Like, he, he catches a knife and everybody closes in on him. Apparently, in the longer cut, there is a scene where uh, Hercules is depicted singing soprano afterwards, implying that uh, he had a surgery of his own, involuntary, presumably. But that is left if out you of what, If you listen to our episode on hard candy... There you go. Know all about that one. I mentioned Prince Randian with the knife in his mouth crawling through the mud. That was really amazing. That was creepy. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where I, I so struggle to call this movie a horror film because the scene where everywhere Cleo and Hercules go and the sideshow performers are there and hiding under things and creepily staring at them. Like it's definitely the most like out of context horror moment. But in context, I'm completely on the side of the sideshow performers. Oh, absolutely. They're objectively the protagonists in that scene. Yeah. These are the avenging angels here to avenge Hans's, his abuse. And the payoff, though, that's what you're waiting for. You know, yeah. want something bad to happen to this person and you're just watching her run around and scream in sheer terror. Of what's about to happen to her. And then you don't yeah. see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, you see the aftermath. They, oh, yeah. They've spent the entire film humanizing these people. And then at the very end of the film, they dehumanize them. Like, they are creatures crawling through the mud. Like, even the ones who could stand up and walk are not. Everybody is in the mud. Yeah. Um, on their bellies, crawling through the mud. And I, I just thought that was really interesting choice to make at that time because it's sort of like it's the code and all that stuff of the group and they're and, and yeah i'm rooting for them too and i don't think they're horrible and yet they're in this last moment sort of dehumanized yeah well especially with schlissy there yeah. because she's like the other guys all have kind of this this essence that they've been through shit they're hardened especially dude with his little newsy cap and his switchblade and you know he might as well be like about to kick your, <laughs> kick your ass to music uh i guess he did but yeah and then you have schlitzy there and she's like crawling around in the mud in her dress with the knife which i'm like considering what all went into that being filmed i'm very uncomfortable with whatever morality surrounds putting that actor or you know i should say that person in that situation crawling under a wagon with a knife anyway yeah and and as brian was saying that scene sort of just ends yeah. i don't know if we're missing stuff there or not it seems like probably but they cut back to the bookend from the beginning we're seeing this horrible thing that's resulted from this and it's uh they it seems unlikely they've turned cleo into some sort of uh, chicken woman beast. Um, not sure how that works. The Wikipedia yeah. article says she has been hard and permanently feathered, but it really looks like she has just become sort some sort of human chicken hybrid. Like they put her a human head on a human sized chicken body. 
Yeah, because I was uh, stupidly, I was analyzing. I'm like, how did they shoot this? All right, they have her body underneath this like hay, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And I was like, well, okay, this is weird. And I actually rewound it back to watch. But he's like, all right, now look down there, everybody. It, That's where she went. It honestly feels like noticeably fake in this movie. Like even for even for just being prosthetics effects, the fact that every sideshow performer in the movie has been an actual real sideshow performer and there's been no like there's been no movie magic to achieve any of the things they're doing. They're just yeah. actually doing it for there then at the very end to then be any degree of movie special effects trickery at work. It just reads very obviously as that after an entire hour of very obviously being no trickery, no film trickery at work. Yeah, I don't know if it was that my sense. As much as I'm complaining about 1932 special effects. Yeah, take that fucking practical effects artist from the 30s. Hope you feel bad about this podcast 90 years later. <laughs> it's alarming. It's like watching a movie and there's a completely CG character in it all of a sudden. And you're like, what the heck? Like, where did this come from? It stands out really bad. So. That's exactly it. It's like if after an entire movie full of Jim Henson level practical effects, there was right at the very end, Jar -Jar. A, yeah, like a Phantom Menace level CGI character. Yeah. yeah. It's, I guess it's my context of watching Nightmare Alley and then seeing this movie through the eyes of the performers. I think what may have happened is that they had beat her up and she had somehow been mangled. And then they dressed her up in this outfit. And that was the point is that they dressed her up to humiliate her. So it wasn't it wasn't so much like a weird supernatural fusion of man and beast or whatever, uh, or like permanent tarred and feathered like in the cartoons. But I, I think that there is something to be said about the fact that this is the only person in the movie that we see on display as part of the show doing their doing an act or being an act. Because we Just see that. the, the yeah. sword swallower with his rack of swords, but we don't see him swallow until the wedding. Yeah. Yeah. She's also the only one that shows revulsion towards the other characters in the movie. I mean, even Hercules is, Hercules sucks, but he's not like calling them dirty freaks. He's just, Hercules is really dumb. And all of his like hate, all of his hate just seems like a very TV jock level hate. Like, yeah, he just wants to be shoving nerds in lockers. He doesn't know what nerds or arguably lockers are, but he knows it's what he <laughs> is supposed to be doing. I don't know. When were lockers invented? I don't know. I think lockers were around because they were okay. around in World War One. because you had stuff in your locker then. What's the show someone yeah. in a foot locker? Yeah, yeah. He, there, were, there were a variety of lockers. Is it, Hercules is a man born to give wedgies. Now, yeah. Now we do have to talk about this last scene past the bookends where Hans has retired to his palatial estate in Germany in disgrace after his uh, wedding uh, and refuses to see anyone. But Frozo and, and Venus uh, are going to take no for an answer and shove their way in to get Frida to see him. Frida is, you know, trying to get him to forgive himself. And he's saying basically that he didn't want them to hurt Venus. He just wanted to get the poison and everybody else felt like they had to enforce the code. She's, she's comforting him. And that's sort of where we end frozen and Venus leave. And so do we. It feels like the tacked on happy ending that is 
supposedly in the original Nightmare Alley and is very much not in the modern Nightmare Alley. Yeah. Yeah. That, that seemed like a studio note to me. Yeah. If it was like, we, on. we yeah. need to make Hans like more likable. Like we can't have our actual main characters sanction this like torturing of a woman. So have this scene where it's like he didn't mean for it to get out of control and he feels bad about it. I think it's interesting that he retires in disgrace from the circus to a palatial estate. Yeah. Again, some real dick grace and energy. Yeah, but also like that is suggesting that when he was not in disgrace, he was touring the circuit. He did it for the thrill of performing. Yeah, well, he was that, that it was a choice. Yeah, it was, it was it was his choice and it was his passion. He found his family. Yeah. Where did oh. you guys watch the movie? HBO. Okay. HBO. Okay, so we all watched it on HBO then. So I guess the biggest thing other than it looks it looks like it's physically removed like they shot it later. The lighting is terrible. It looked blurry. It looked blown out. It didn't yeah. look... The, the rest of the movie looked beautiful. But then you have this tacked on... I don't even know how long. What is it? Like a minute and a half maybe? Yeah, I don't want to know how long did Frozo and Venus travel to just like duck in for a 40 second high and by they just wanted the frida yeah. and hans to for a frida delivery system yeah yeah they wanted them to make amends yeah, they like drop yeah. her off and, and then she kind of like nudges and like come on let's go let's give them a minute you know and then they're yeah. hugging and yeah yeah what what did she say don't cry i love you or something like that and then it's over right yeah again yeah to the very end frida just being like i just care about your happiness fucking like such a selfless character like a character that oh. the sneakiest gold digger ever <laughs> right oh uh, <laughs> now that would have been a fucking twist if she's like i know how to play the fucking long game well, look yeah. where they left it they were in the house alone yeah now new head oh, been and accepted gotta wait That's for the sequel <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, too, is that when Frida mentioned the inheritance, I thought she was trying to get Cleo to show her hand. And I thought she was trying to prove that Cleo didn't give a shit about Hans, but for his money, because that's what that was her initial. Yeah, like that was her initial accusation. She came in, she's like, you don't care about him except for his money. And then Cleo's like, oh, no, I want to be queen of the earth or whatever. You know, how do you know that I'm just playing with him? And Frida's like, he did just get an inheritance. And immediately fucking Cleo's just like foaming at the mouth for the sweet dollars. But then I love the way for Frida revealing the inheritance that Cleo was almost played like a Sherlock Holmesian where it's aha the last piece has been you've accidentally revealed the last piece of the puzzle yeah yeah there's a whole scene where at one point even Hercules is like where's this circus performer getting all this money for champagne and platinum brazen like necklaces I thought it was I just because he was, yeah, it was just that's what I yeah, thought yeah, yeah. yeah it was just showing <laughs> terminal like crazy uh, in curiosity She's like, what a credit card debt? I don't know. Credit cards are a thing in the 30s, I assume. I'll take it as long as it lasts. Who cares? I mean, it was a great depression. I don't know if they were really into credit cards at that point. <laughs> no, probably not. One thing I do want to mention now that we're and I want to bring it back to the Hold beginning on. a little Hold bit. Hold on. The Great Depression thing. It's German. So no, no issue with 
poverty or anything in Germany at this time between, say, World War oh. One and World War Two, is there? No, uh, uh, that's okay. That's another thing I wanted to mention because in the prologue message, they talk about the great quote unquote malforms people of history and how they've been vilified or that they've been these monsters and they're like like goliath caliban and kaiser wilhelm yeah yeah i thought that was really funny too what a fucking dig at kaiser wilhelm and goliath what okay yeah goliath is just a big guy that's like calling Shaq like disabled for just being Shaq. yeah he's just big and presumably could beat David Spade in a fight. I assume that's what the fight is referring to. Shaquille O'Neal versus David Spade. I want to see that Disney or Warner Brothers seems to be the basketball ones. Um, Whoever runs MMA, just put fucking Shaq versus David Spade in the octagon. <laughs> it has to be a, a basketball related fight. David Spade would totally do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then they like have to ju- like they're they're supposed to fight, but then they have to join together and like against a common enemy, which is like the monsters or something. And then it becomes Slayerball, the basketball spinoff from the two thousands on Spike TV that was basketball played on the trampolines. That's a deep cut that I even I'm really digging into the Spike TV catalog. Yeah, we're in this. We're, we're I'm cutting back to Spike TV. Welcome to that sweet, sweet 2000s nostalgia. One more on that. Let me ask you guys, is Freaks feminist? First, I want to say no. Second, I want to say it has some awareness. We definitely get between Venus, Cleopatra, and Frida, we definitely get a wide variety of women roles in this movie. Yeah. Even with the Siamese twins as well, and they're like they're sticking out their own agency together. I think there there was that. And then there was uh, Frances O'Connor. They did at least show women having their own agency. Like Frida, even though she's had it along, she's sort of the person in control in that relationship. Like she's making her choices. And, and Venus too, in a way, is, you know, once she sheds herself of Hercules, like she's sick of carrying his lazy butt around. So she's the one who leaves him. And... And I think she does push back in that conversation with Frozo, you know, so there is a little bit of, of awareness around that. Cleo certainly is not a portrayal of a woman that I want to say, is, oh, hey, let's look at that. That's a really good representation of. Yeah. A remorseless villain. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. In fact, I find this movie hard to talk about in a lot of ways, just because for it having come out in the 30s, it's remarkably progressive in some ways in the fact that there's been movies that have come out, I mean, within the last 20 years where like they've cast able-bodied actors as disabled people and just been like, oh no, that's the way we do it. It's fine. And, you know, made a display out of the disability without ever consulting or working with people who actually have those disabilities. And this movie in the 1930s, not just casts those people, but makes a point of humanizing them and showing them in some ways, in boring ways, you know, that they're like, they're just people, they just do stuff. They just do normal things, you know, in in a way that's sort of revolutionarily boring. It's interesting because of the, we talked about the, like the voice acting in these kind of movies where you have the mid-Atlantic accent that is meant to be very dramatic. 
and also a very specific kind of line delivery, yeah. which is um, definitely not something that fits in with slice of life. Which is also why bloopers for movies from these eras are a fucking trip. Because they'll be doing these like crazy mid-Atlantic accents and then they'll make a blooper and then they'll just immediately start talking like a real fucking human being. Yeah. So it's weird to see something from the 30s that is very slice of life and very almost like a documentary. But there's so much production and pantomime and all these very classical acting and sensationalizing depictions of these stories that seeing a movie that's just about people living their lives is really pretty revolutionary for the time. What's interesting about the movie, and I did read a little bit more into it, is the resurgence that it had in the early 60s, how it became yeah. kind of a cult following and started showing, what, 30 years after it was banned, like all over the world. And, you know, in some countries where it didn't even air or, or air, oh my gosh, it didn't even show originally. And I think that's really interesting where people started accepting it for what it was and I think he died shortly before the resurgence to the director. Yeah. And that's sad too, because what did he die in 60? I think it, what, 63, 64? like that, yeah. Started booming and then he passed away, unfortunately, when people started appreciating it. And now, I think it's in, in the National Film Registry. I think it's a preserved film too. Yeah. I, I think you're right on all accounts, but like it does not stand the test of time, but it's it's wonderful that it's, being preserved. I don't think this is one of my favorite films, but I can definitely appreciate it for what it is being when it was made, the slice of life that it is, that almost documentary feel it has, which you're right. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, I think all the points you're making are super interesting too. Thank you. That's how, how it has resonated through other yeah. films. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, what I think I was trying to get at earlier was the fact that this movie isn't very sensitive and the fact that it shows puts these people on display much more like they would be in a carnival where part of the point of the carnival is to stare or fetishize or sensationalize the weirdness, the strangeness of the other of the people performing or the, the people involved. But the fact that is questioned at all, I think is really important in this movie and it's it's very far from what we would consider today something that is a objective view there's so much care taken and the that i keep going back to the whole thing about shame and it's not telegraphed as much as you might think it would be because you would see they talk about the code of the freaks and you know you hurt one of us you hurt all of us but the kind of subtle interactions that these characters have when somebody feels ashamed they are immediate that is immediately addressed by another character and says hey don't and that is of the response is comfort right where they're like you don't have to be scared remember don't be scared you are people and we're all god's children or it's very so something like that yeah yeah i think it's interesting i, I think this movie is, is more progressive i think in that respect than almost any of the other respects we might talk about it, it does deal a lot with disability but it doesn't do anything really with race. We only really have one person of color in the cast and they're not a main character. All of the characters in this are sort of the same class. They don't deal really with a class struggle other than, uh, uh, other than Hans, who's apparently super rich and just a circus for the love of it. And then, <laughs> yeah, we've, we've talked about there not being real, uh, much of a show of LGBT themes in this other than it is in some ways shares the queer ideology of 
found family and togetherness and being part of the community. They do make a point of having the assholes be the one to make to make the uh, the gender fluid character the butt of a joke. That that violence is unnecessary, of course, but the messaging of this particular movie, especially how it depicts women, they are very celebratory. They're walking around in their chones and everything, you know, like it's very, very casual. And the women are also allowed to be a little bit more risque because Venus, when we first really see her other than putting the seal away, she has her clothes off of her shoulders and she's being very fiery and she's very much protagonist. We're very much supposed to sympathize with her, but she's also not super dressed up. The amount of shoulder in this movie is scandalous, to be honest, if this is going to be of the time. Free coat. That was the the standard of the day, and, and including how they showed women in stronger positions and owning their own sexuality. They actually were showing that these women were sexual people, that Cleo was a sexual person, that Venus was a sexual person, was something that then would stop happening. Also, the depiction the code was in the shitty. Yeah, and also the depiction of the the conjoined twins and having one of them enjoying the kiss that the other one was experiencing. That's pretty like for the time. That's whew. I love that moment. It's a great yeah. moment too. But anyway, going back to Josephine Joseph, you know, there is this feminine, like the sacred feminine going on with the ladies of this movie unless they go out of bounds like Cleo and Cleo has to go way out of bounds in order for us to be like yeah she kill that bitch so this is a really really long-winded say way of saying that this movie made the transphobic violence as dishonorable and deplorable as it should be depicted as if it is to be depicted in film do you think for the time do you think this is doing it as much justice as they could I guess I don't know if that's I, right. I think so. That's, I think that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. I mean, if they're going to do it at all, which they don't have to, but yeah, they've made that choice. I, Hercules I just, is a guy of, of such sterling character that you really can't uh, question the fact that, yeah, this is bad. This is a bad guy doing a bad thing. Yeah. It's interesting that we talk about the code, but the code among the group, they don't, they take revenge when Hans is humiliated and hurt, but they don't take revenge when Joseph Josephine is. That's true. They don't really have their back on that. Yeah, which... You're right. That's a great point. Yeah. And I was thinking about that, too, because there's also the idea that, like, he did punch the quote-unquote Joseph side. This is a whole bag of bananas that I'm not sure if I want to sort through at this point right. with this movie, because I don't think the movie knows what it's doing at this point. I agree. You know, yeah. Yeah. I think the best question to ask at this point is, uh, guys, do we think, do we recommend people check this movie out? Do we think it's worth seeing? Yeah. I mean, mind the warnings. Yeah, like definitely take into account what it is. But I'd say, I mean, you know, if you're a real like film fan and want to appreciate just like the history of the medium, this is a really unique view into American culture in the 1930s and specifically into pre-code uh, talkies. And I do think that if you're a horror fan, seeing some of those images, like just recently in Nightmare Alley, would be something you'd appreciate that source. You guys have made a lot of great points. I think, and I, I know I mentioned this earlier, I think it's a beautifully shot film, too. For the mo Other than the last tacked on part, which Jeremy said, I think the studio probably forced them to do. But other than that, it's gorgeous. It's a beautiful black and white film. Yeah, it definitely... It's aesthetic, and I think you can see a lot of what will be like, especially Guillermo del Toro's aesthetic in, in the future, like 
you can see the influence that this movie creates that leads to stuff like Nightmare Alley and, you know, a lot of other stuff in there as well. I and mean, keeping that in mind, do we have any recommendations for uh, stuff people should check out if they enjoyed this or they want something else along these lines? Susan, did you have anything? You know, I was trying to think about it. This has totally made me want to go on like a Todd Browning hunt and go check out some of uh, the other films that that he did. I'm a film noir buff, so I love all things old movie, but this is not a, a genre that I've really delved into. So that's something I definitely want to go do is check out more Todd Browning movies. And he, he directed quite a few. He's got 62 credits. He did uh, uh, the original Dracula, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He did a lot of the Lon Chaney stuff. Yeah. I would recommend The Greatest Showman starring Hugh Jackman because all circus movies are the same, right? <laughs> Watch uh, the live action Dumbo. I think I made it 10 minutes into that before I turned it off. Ooh. I, I rarely, Ooh. Theater, I love bad movies and I rarely turn movies off and I turn that off. Yeah. That was just when I saw the trailer, I was like, nah, I'm all right. Yeah. Yay, DeVito. So I gave it a minute and I gave it 10 minutes and then I turned it off. <laughs> I forgot about Danny DeVito. And my son, even, my, he even got bored after 10 minutes. So how dare you? Don't you ever forget Danny DeVito? <laughs> That's the power of the movie. Apparently the mediocrity of this film is that it has managed to overshadow Danny DeVito. Him, Colin Farrell, Robin Lord Taylor into the penguin verse. Let's go. <laughs> that about. Like, now, Brian, that's uh, that's an anti-rec. Do you have something you do recommend people check out? I mean, don't watch with, live action Dumbo, but I'm kind of with Susan. I don't really, I don't really watch films like this, so it was really fun for me to. I'm not against it. I just don't usually watch films like Freak. I'm more of a '90s, '80s movie kind of guy. I don't know all the episodes that you guys have done, but I would say my, I like Monster Squad. I'd watch that. <laughs> I'll just leave that there. <laughs> I just watched Monster Squad with, with my kids a while back. Yeah. I really loved Monster Squad growing up. It's a little strong on the, uh, a lot of F slurs real early in there. Yeah. It hasn't aged well. Like my memory of it is very different from when I'd showed my nine-year-old son the movie and I was cringing halfway. Like I, we made it through it, but yeah, I was like, oh, this isn't how I remember it. <laughs> right. Yeah. The first scene of that movie has lots of like anti-gay slurs and yeah. um, other stuff in there that I was just like, oh no, I made a mistake. It's yeah. Like, yeah. It's like when you have music on and you got your kids in the car and you cough or make a loud noise over some word or something like that. I, I just stopped the movie and I had to talk to him about what they were talking about. So yeah. dad has tuberculosis. He's just coughing the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I've seen modern, modern stuff. I, I really liked archive 81. I thought that was very good. Mm-hmm. I listened um, to the podcast of it when it was originally a podcast, but yeah, me too. And then I watched it recently. I thought it was really good. It was, I'd be interested to hear when you guys all watch it, talk about it to hear what your take is. Okay. So. For recommendations for me, if you are interested in weird, outdated attempts at feminism or some almost progressive Who isn't? motions. <laughs> In that direction, there's this really fascinating film called Hoxon, and it's about witches and witchcraft through the ages. And then it, it starts out as sort of a very badly researched depiction of witches in quote unquote history, which read folklore, according to two people, maybe. But then it starts talking about 
vil- vilifying women with hysteria and also vilifying older women who have been through a lot and have uh, disfigurement and like attributing the xenophobia to the fear of witches and witchcraft, which at the time I was like, okay, guys, I see what you're, I see what you're trying to do, but it's also fantastic, like crazy buck wild romp into a lot of amazing, it's silent. There's a lot of depictions of Hieronymus Bosch-esque hellscapes in film with a lot of cardboard and outfits and stuff, which is fantastic. It's, It's worth the journey for sure. So that's Hoxen, which means which. Yeah. Uh, my recommendation is if you like pretty movies that claim to be horror movies and aren't quite, no, they're just beautiful black and white movies. This one is from 1960, so it's not quite as old, but it's French as Les Yeux Sans Visage, It's Eyes Without a Face. It is a somewhat beloved old horror movie in French. It is beautifully made it has a nice suspenseful feeling to it although it's not particularly scary they do the mask that the uh woman who has eyes without a face wears and it is uh, somewhat unsettling it's a really interesting movie the only problem i ever had with it is the evil nurse and it has a like a theme when she's hunting people a theme music (laughs) which is supposed to sound creepy and scary i think but actually just sounds like uh the theme from curb your enthusiasm (laughs) <laughs> it was really distracting to me as I was watching this and it was supposed to be like, oh no, now she's going to pluck another unsuspecting young woman onto the streets to do horrible things too. But it just sounded like Larry David was having trouble with his pleated pants or something. Well, it's cool that they got uh, Billy Idol to do the song. Right. For the movie. But yeah, definitely worth checking out Eyes Without a Face. Uh, now, Brian, Susan, before you guys go, we wanted to let people know where they can find you and your work online. Can you let us know where they can find you and uh, a little bit about Next as well, since that is coming up soon? And take it away, Susan. You can talk about the book and I'll talk about all the other fun stuff. Okay, great. So Nyx is kind of an all-ages adventure about, it's kind of a fantasy setting where a young girl who is no longer among the living, but she's not quite dead either, uh, is a spirit. And she basically is trying to stop her villainous father from starting a feud that will end all things. So she's trying to train a young prince into figuring out how to use his powers. Brian's art on it is amazing. It's kind of a fun thing. Both of their fathers are the problem. And it's really cool to see these two kids coming together to try and uh, figure out a solution to the problem of their fathers, trying to stop this feud and figuring out who they are as well. And you can uh, find out anything you want about Nyx. You can go on Instagram at Hestoons, Twitter, and Facebook. And yeah, we have links to download it, links to buy it, links to order it, all that kind of stuff. Uh, It'll be there for you. Fantastic. Well, thank you guys so much. As for the rest of us, you can find Emily at Megamoth on Twitter and at Mega underscore Moth on Instagram and Megamoth.net. Ben is on Twitter at BenTheCon and their website at BenConComics.com where you can pick up all of their books, including the brand new Immortals Phoenix Rising graphic novel from Great Beginnings and the Glad Award-nominated Renegade Rule graphic novel from Dark Horse. And finally, for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jrome 58 and my website at JeremyWhitley.com where you can check out everything I write. And of course, the podcast is on Patreon at Progressively Horrified, our website at progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, and on Twitter at Prague Horror Pod, where we'd love to hear from you. Please come let us know what you think, comment on the episode, make sure you rate and review this uh, wherever you listen, 
And we would always love to give it five stars. It helps us find new listeners there as well. And thanks again so much for Brian and Susan for joining us. Thanks for coming out, guys. Thank you so Thank much you. for having me. It's a great time. Thank you so much for coming on. It was a blast getting to talk about this movie with you. It's great to see you all again. I'm really looking forward to Nick's. And thank you for bringing this movie to our yeah. show. Because Nick's looks no, wonderful. Very yeah, excited yeah. for it. Thank you. Usually the, the oldest movie that we've reviewed so far and probably the oldest we're like to review for some time. Yeah. Uh, but we'll, get to, we'll get to Nosferatu sooner one of these days. Good day. But as always, thanks to Ben and Emily for joining me and thanks to all of you for listening. And until next time, stay horrified. Progressively Horrified is created by Jeremy Whitley and produced and edited by me, Alicia Whitley. This episode features Jeremy, Ben, Emily, and special guests Susan Beneville and Brian Hess. All opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and do not represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers, nor do they represent the employees, institutions, or publishers of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Cole 06 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay horrified.